0: And now, here is Doreen. Hi,
1: I'm Dr. Doreen Downing, and I'm here today with a fabulous guest. I'm host of the Find Your Voice, Change Your Life podcast. And what I do is invite guests here who have found their voice. And somewhere along the line, there was some difficulty in having a voice. But today, my guest, Sandy Rosenthal, has done something that has completely changed my impression of what happened during Katrina in 2005, I believe it was. And we'll hear more about that. But wow, Sandy found her voice, spoke up against authority and the powers to be, and has made a huge change in how we have viewed that disaster, I might call it. And I know I know she calls it the the 2005 flood, and we'll hear way more about it today. But first, I just want to say hi, Sandy.
2: Hey, Joanne, I'm so
1: delighted to be here today. Yes. Well, I met you in a book club meeting, and your book, and I'll talk about that in a minute also, was partly what we discussed, and you... Uh, I've read it, and I know that this is one of the things that everybody said. It was a page-turner. It's something you can't put down. It's like, wow, I lived a lot of what happened during Katrina just by reading your pages and the stories you told and not only your journey to be a voice for for your city.
2: (laughs) I appreciate that very much.
1: Yeah. So you sent a bio, so I'd like to read it just so that we can get on the same page and people are... Understand some of your background. (laughs) Okay. After Hurricane Katrina and the federal levy failures in New Orleans, Sandy Rosenthal founded the nonprofit levy.org with 25,000 supporters nationwide. Her book, Words Whispered in Water, is about how she led an investigative team to expose the culprit in the levee reach disaster, the Army Corps of Engineers, <laughs> and how the agency spent millions covering up its mistakes. Rosenthal is an advocate for the 62% of the American population living by levies. Sandy hosts a weekly podcast called Beat the Big Guys, <laughs> where she coaches her national audience on how to take on the big guys in their own communities. Rosenthal plays tennis six days a week, practices yoga, teaches her dogs silly tricks, and spends time every month with her two grandchildren in San Francisco. Wow, that's a big mouthful, I'm sure, but I'm really glad that there are highlights here that people can begin to place who you are and why you're here today.
2: Well, thank you so much for that introduction. That was a a lot of material. I I was was hoping you would cut some of it out. There was quite a bit there. (laughs) But
1: it's all so important, you know, really exposing what you did with the Army Corps and the mistakes and the millions of dollars that uh, they were trying to save that then probably cost way, way, way more. But uh, before we go into the actual... Uh, event and the book and uh, what's currently going on for you. I always like to explore early childhood. I think you grew up and were born. You were born in New Orleans, right?
2: Actually, no. I was actually born born in the Boston area. Oh, south that's of why Boston. You, that's why you have the Boston accent. Yes, as my my father's from uh, he he would say Norwood, uh, Massachusetts, and my mother was from Pawtucket. So the two of those dialects are very thick and very distinct, and I was raised with um, a combination of those two. Well, and you mentioned to me that that played
1: a part in you being a young girl and having that heavy accent as well as something that you call a... What a disability, or what do you call it?
2: Sure. When I was a, a young a youngster in high, in um, grammar school, it was called a handicap. Uh huh. And then it changed to disability. I'm not sure what they call it now. And the interesting thing is, what I have is sensorineural hearing loss, and it's a strange word because it implies that i that I at one time had normal hearing. I was born hearing the way I do. I didn't lose anything. So, it, and it's a very misunderstood thing. Hearing is so misunderstood. People think that if you go get hearing aids, it, that it's like glasses that mm-hmm. you put on your glasses and you can see. Well, people believe wrongly that that somebody would put in hearing aids and can magically hear. It doesn't work that way. It's a completely different process. And for um, my entire life, there was no hearing aid that fixed the the hearing problem that I had and uh, if I, can i go ahead and jump into so what happened to me growing up because of that
1: absolutely because that's you learning how to be yourself in the world have a voice speak up and when you speak if it has the accent and some kind of uh, something different for folks or
2: little kids you're going to be pointed out pointed absolutely. out absolutely so so what happened is uh, I'm, I'm born with this hearing loss and it turns up there's a gene for it. My mother had it. My sister has it. My daughter has the gene, but does not have the, the, the hearing loss. No, it's good luckily for her, but, um, I definitely had it. And so growing up, things sound differently to me. And uh-huh. I'll give you an example. Yes. Uh, so, uh, a, a classic one is, uh, that, the 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 a hen is a chicken and normally it would be chicken. I hear chicken. Uh-huh. That's what I hear. So, But practice and practice and practice. I've learned how to pronounce things properly. Practice and being picked on by an older brother and other kids for the way I pronounce things. I eventually learned, you know, I learned how to say chicken, but a lot of the more subtle sounds, the mm-hmm. THs, the Rs, the Ls, I had a lot of trouble with right into my adult life, right up until the age of 40. Keep in mind that when I moved to New Orleans, I not only had this... Um, This difference in speech wasn't a speech impediment impediment. There's nothing wrong with my jaw and my bone structure. Mm -hmm. It was the way I spoke. And combining that with that heavy accent, that heavy Boston dialect, people literally couldn't understand me. My family could understand me. and and imagine, so as you can imagine, it was embarrassing, you know, Mm -hmm. it and and annoying that people couldn't understand me. Mm -hmm. And finally, at the age of 40 years old, I was so fed up with not being understood that I actually went to speech therapy school uh, to learn how to speak at, at my age. And it was remarkably exhausting. They would put things in my mouth, like I would have to hold a cork, a wine cork in my mouth uh, and and talk with the cork in my mouth. And all of this was designed to get me to open up my mouth. People with a Boston dialect tend to talk like this. They tend to clench their teeth together when they talk. So um, the the good news about speech therapy is I get to practice all day long, every day. Yes. <laughs> and I'm still practicing. I, I don't think a day goes by where I think about, did I pronounce my L right? Did I touch my tongue to where my teeth meets my, my gum when I say the? You know, I, I, to this day, I'm still working on my speech, and um, and what that did was it gave me confidence. And when it came time for me to use my voice, I I had the confidence to do it. Now I didn't have confidence in public speaking, but at least I had confidence in my ability in my ability to make myself understood. This is so
1: fabulous. I have not heard a story like yours, and I'm sure that what we're talking about in just in terms of pronunciation and words and language and sound and all of that has something to do with you, your, your willingness to come into a center stage. And I would say that you, you held yourself back for probably a pretty long time, even though uh, 40 years is down the line. Some, you probably
2: already had children by then and 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 what what's interesting is when I announced to my my children that I wanted to take speech therapy, they didn't like that idea. They wanted me. They didn't want me to sound different. Oh, and I said, oh, yeah, I did too. <laughs> very sweet. That's very sweet. But you know, I I'm doing this for me. And even though I I to this day I still remember how I think that was a very sweet thing for them to to say. <laughs> Yeah, Excuse yeah, that's, that's how I. And, felt too and the that. only other thing I want to point out is, if you if your hearing is normal, you and your sight is normal, you just learn to speak. That babies are doing it all day, every day. They they just do it. But if you don't have normal hearing or normal eyesight, nice eyesight can help too. You don't learn how to do those subtle sounds, mm-hmm. and you don't realize that you that you never learned them. Uh, I actually tied for first place with the best accent in college. And the the other person that won the best accent award had a thick Puerto Rican accent, accent, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: which was from Puerto Rico. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) Well, this is uh, pretty fascinating to hear how uh, you also were awarded for that voice. It was a um well it was a a, a, a gag award you know uh-huh. I won it from my the the my college dorm the the floor of my college dorm you okay. know fun it's like a fun fun awards but again uh, I went to college in my home state of Massachusetts uh-huh. and I had a thick thick accent. Well, what brought you to New Orleans? I married a local. I met him at Amos College. I went to Mount Holyoke. He went to Amos, And we actually met on the, the campus of Mount Holyoke. And we fell in love and got married right out of college. And we were coming up on 44 years. Oh,
1: congratulations, 44. Thank you. Good, good chunk of time together. And uh, what was he studying and what were you studying at the time?
2: I studied psychology, which I believe I still use to this day. And he studied economics and is definitely still using that to this day. Uh, he he went into insurance, uh, the family insurance business. And I went into a career in marketing. And then afterward, after the levy breaches, after the catastrophe of the levy breach, then I moved into community mobilizing, which I'm still doing to this day. I'm the, the uh, things happen in town that need a community mobilizer. I jump in and go, I'll do that. <laughs> I'll, I got that. Oh, Sandy, if anybody isn't uh, watching you, I just want to
1: say to the uh, people listening, the way that you just smiled so brightly right there about your willingness to step into and up you know, on a stage, basically, to lead.
0: If you want to get started right away to find your voice, download Doreen's free seven-step guide to fearless speaking at Doreen7steps.com.
1: So you did mention, and let's move into that now, about uh, having taken your vocal, I guess, uh, challenges seriously, and then that helped you feel like you can go on uh, a stage when you needed to. But how... Okay. So let's go back. And so the hurricane happened in 2005 Mm -hmm. and you're living in New Orleans, you're raising your family and you've done this work around vocalizations, speech. And what happened that you, I've got saying that you had to do something about it because I, yeah, you tell a little bit
2: of the story then. Yeah. So a hurricane happened. It didn't hit New Orleans that hit Mississippi, but there was a storm surge that ended up causing uh, levees to fail, levees that we had always depended on, levees that we thought were utterly invincible, and they failed in in many major spots uh, and flooded the city of New Orleans. I, uh, out of, you know, perhaps luck, uh, I I didn't flood, my home didn't flood, and Uh, I packed for three weeks. My husband had seen Hurricane Betsy and the damage that did 50 years earlier. And he told me, no, 40 years earlier. And he told me, Sandy, pack for three weeks. We're not coming back to the city for three weeks. And because of that, I was in a unique position, a unique um, place where I could listen to what was being said. Listen to the radio, watch the news on TV, read read. Well, we couldn't read the newspaper; we didn't have one. We only had radio and t- and um, television. This is keep in mind. This is seventeen years ago, and I very quickly formed a different version of events than what I was hearing. It, it sounded to me like these levees broke because they were designed wrongly, not because of anything that the local official didn't do or nothing to do with the storm and certainly nothing to do with the city of New Orleans. And that hunch that I had, I stuck with it. And then eventually, um, the the more I read, uh, keep in mind, I didn't flood. I didn't have to deal with FEMA. I didn't have to deal with an insurance company. I didn't have to deal with a contractor. I was fortunate that that was that l- lucky place. I was at the right place at the right time, for lack of a better word. And I I uh, I started. I, I formed my own version of events. I was convinced I was right, and I started talking about it. And then I got into an argument with a young, with a not a young man, a, a man about my age from Alexandria, the city of Alexandria, which is about two hours from New Orleans, and he. Uh, He and I were talking about the catastrophe, and I told him it was the levees, those levees built by the federal government. They failed, they should have held. And he told me, no, 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 no. Uh, Katrina was a huge storm. There's nothing wrong with those levees, and the people like you who are living there don't deserve any help. Mm. Mm. I don't know his name. I, I wish I did because I'd like to thank him because he put me on the straight and narrow path. I had to do something. I had to do something. But then I was concerned. I said, well, who's going to lead this movement to, to get the word out? I mean, I, I can't do that. I have no experience like that. And I'm not a public speaker. I've never done any public speaking before. And for two weeks, I tried to find another organization that was already doing the work that I wanted to do. No such group existed. And for another two weeks, I wasted precious time looking for a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. And I said, well... I guess I'm going to have to do it, and and I know if it had if I had not taken that speech therapy just a few years earlier, just a few short years earlier, uh, I would never have had the confidence to do it. And 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 when it came time for me to um for someone to put a a TV camera in my face or a mic in my face, you know, what went through my head? What that what happened to me i'm one of the lucky ones and and talking to a tv station or a radio station often on a moment's notice is a walk in the park is 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 a is a piece of cake so to speak compared to the suffering of the people of new orleans m- m- many of whom like 50% of them lost everything and if they didn't lose everything they lost a lot a lot of these people lost uh, family members over f- uh, 1400 people died within a few hours so that was what I uh, had to do. I, I actually I'm going to restart. I just said to myself, "This is easy, public speaking. uh, this is easy compared to the suffering that I've watched all around me.
1: Oh, that is such a point to have put it relative to what suffering was happening around you that public speaking anxiety uh, doesn't compare. ooh. <laughs> I guarantee
2: you, Doreen, there are a lot of capable, smart, motivated people out there who who have everything it needs to take on a um, a community problem, but don't have the speaking ability. Just can't do it. And if you can't do the speaking, you can't you can't lead.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely you can't lead if you can't speak. And it's
1: there's this actual kind of speaking but there's the fear and the fear that holds people back and it, what you're saying is fear didn't hold you back it was like your passion and your what you were seeing needed to be done it was it was it was like you you were called to step into it even though you might have been afraid but luckily you weren't
2: there was basically no time to be afraid if that makes uh, sense yeah there was no time. the The sense of urgency was constant, uh, especially in the first months. And then in the first years. i I don't now. It's been seventeen years. I, while I still don't have that same day-to-day sense of urgency, you know what I do have looming ahead of me. What? We have the twentieth anniversary coming up in just two years.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: in just two years. We got the twentieth anniversary coming up. and And already I'm making plans. For what we're going to do uh, when the 20th anniversary of the worst catastrophe, of the worst engineering catastrophe in the history of the nation it comes around.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I were listening to this today, I might wonder so, what was the result? What has been the result of you pointing the finger at what was really the mistakes that
2: were made by the Army Eng- uh, Corps of Engineers? As you know, it's all laid out in um, spellbinding detail in my page turner book. I love when people say that, that's a yes. page turner. That's what I wanted it to be. I didn't want it to be a textbook. Mm-hmm. And all the details are in there. But the bottom line is it did take longer than I thought it would. It was harder than I thought it would be. But finally, eventually, major media finally has the story correctly. And that is that the Army Corps of Engineers was looking for ways to save money when they were building their levies. And in the 1980s, they were behind schedule. Uh, the the, the um, Government Accountability Office had taken them out to the woodshed and given them a, a, a thrashing and said, go back and finish those levies. You're, you're behind schedule. The Army Corps of Engineers is worried, so they look for ways to save money because costs are rising. And they thought they could save money on steel. Steel is very expensive, and it's very expensive to drive it into the ground, into the levees to stabilize them. So they they did a study, uh, a large-scale study, in an area of Louisiana with soil similar to New Orleans, and they determined after their study that they only needed to drive sheet pilings into the ground 16 feet, one-sixth, instead of 46 feet, four-sixths. And that that um n- new guidance saved them a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, yeah, a hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of money uh, when you're when you're building levees. So for a hundred thousand dollars, they changed their guidances, drove all the sheet pilings in only sixteen feet instead of forty six. When Hurricane Katrina's storm surge arrived, the levees just fell over. They fell over when water was still four feet from the tops of the of the of the height of the of the walls four feet. And one of the canals <coughs> broke on both sides. Now, I'm not an engineer, but you would think once a canal is broken on one side, that'll relieve pressure. No, it broke on the other side too. <laughs> these, This is the Army Corps of Engineers. And these were drainage canals. These weren't Mississippi River levee. So it was difficult for all of America to wrap their head around. How could the Army Corps of Engineers made this Bit, terrible mistake. It can't possibly be true. And it took a while to convince uh, the American public about what really happened, but it, it took 10 years. But it it's finally done. There's still a few vestiges of the fairy tale out there. But when I say fairy tale, I mean monster storm, city below the sea, full of corrupt officials. Okay. That was the fairy tale that the Army Corps of Engineers would want you to believe. And they almost got away with it. But uh, but they didn't. and uh, the the big media, New York Times, The Associated Press, all of the big major media, they've got the story right.
1: Mm. I'm sitting here in such gratitude for your one voice that uh, started the whole movement of people waking up to truth. And this is just one model of, What anybody can do, like you said, you know, if you're going to be a leader, you do need to stand up and and speak. You do have to be willing to point in directions that are uncomfortable for yourself, perhaps, but the, the ultimate power that it brings to a community. Wow! Thank you so much, Sam. and
2: and one comment on speaking. I don't mean to disparage people uh, who aren't good public speakers because I know some great speakers with severe uh, cleft palates and severe underbites, and and while their speech is different, they can be understood. And as long as you're understood, as long as you're understood, you you can speak and you can lead. Oh, that's perfect. That. Uh, That's a
1: perfect way to encourage people today. Uh, We're coming to the end, and I'd like to see if there's something else. I mean, in a way, it was both the whole challenge you had about actually speaking in a way that uh, you could be heard by many people, as well as the passion you know, what you, like, I've heard you talk about yourself, well, I was just a housewife, (laughs) you know, and I'm going to get up and lead a movement. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So that both seem to be true of what we've been hearing from you today.
2: It's often people outside of a a field, of a discipline, who are the ones that speak up and say, no, we're not going to accept what you're telling us. Uh, We're not accepting your lies. We're not accepting these untruths. And it's often someone who's... uh, And Erin Brockovich is a perfect example. She had no uh, legal training. Uh, She wasn't a lawyer, not even a a slight bit of legal training. And look what she did. So there's Erin Brockovich's in every one of us.
1: Well, uh, and the Sandy Rosenthal is in every one of us too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for being with us today for this episode of Find Your Voice, Change Your Life. Each person Doreen interviews shares what has helped them find their voice. You can learn from these guests and find your voice so you can be confident to speak up and speak out. And remember to download Doreen's free seven-step guide to fearless speaking at Doreen7steps.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and will return next time. Until then, goodbye for now.